This is Jerry Bingham, host of Hush Loudly on WGN+. We are all of us beings who come into this world with a longing for a more perfect and beautiful world than this one, and a sense of having once belonged to that more perfect world and, and having lost it somehow and longing to return. And we manifest that longing in many different ways. Hi, I'm Susan Kane, author of Bittersweet, and you are listening to Hush Loudly with Jerry Bingham on WGN. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Hush Loudly, where we talk about all things introversion. And I'm very excited about my guest, and we're going to talk to her about her new masterpiece. First, I'd like to read her bio. Susan Kane is the author of the bestsellers Quiet Journal, Quiet Power, The Secret Strengths of Introverts, and Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which has been translated into 40 languages, spent eight years on the New York Times bestseller list, and was named the number one best book of the year by Fast Company Magazine, which also named Kane one of its most creative people in business. Her new masterpiece, Bittersweet, how Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole became a number one instant bestseller when it was released on April 5th, 2022. LinkedIn named Susan the sixth top influencer in the world just behind Richard Branson and Belinda Gates. Susan partners with Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Dan Pink to curate the next Big Idea Book Club. They donate all their proceeds to the children's literacy programs. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Her record-smashing TED Talk has been viewed over 40 million times and was named by Bill Gates as one of his all-time favorite talks. Kane has also spoken at Google, Pixar, and the U.S. Treasury, P&G, Harvard, and West Point. She received Harvard Law School's Celebration for Thought Leadership, the Toastmasters International Golden Gavel Award for Communication and Leadership, and was named one of the world's top 50 leadership and management experts by Inc. Magazine. She is an honors graduate of Princeton and Harvard Law School. She lives in the Hudson River Valley with her husband, two sons, and golden doodle, Sophie. Mm -hmm. So everyone, I'd like to introduce you to and to welcome Susan Kane to our podcast. Well, thank you to my dear friend, Jerry Bingham. It is so great to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you. So excited to talk about this book. I did want to mention and show gratitude for Quiet, the book that we've all been touched by. It was part of my self-discovery. It was life-changing for me. And as I talk to people, it is the same for them. So I know we are not here talking about that today, but I just wanted to thank you again for creating that for us. And I'm excited about Bittersweet, which I read voraciously, and it also has touched me. And so thank you for that. And I'd like to get started how we normally start with every program. I know the answer to this question, but I'll have to ask you, are you an introvert? <laughs> yes, I definitely am. And, um, and, you know, it's actually not like, of course, on its face, that's such a funny question, because of course I am like, who else would have written a, a book called quiet, but 
it's also true that people now ask me all the time. They'll be like, you know, now you go around speaking and you're on all these podcasts and like that. And so maybe you're not an introvert anymore. Yeah. And I I think I can tell by the look on your face, because we're looking at each other as we record this over Zoom, that you probably are as surprised by that question as I am. Because it's like, of course, you can go out and do all these things in the outward facing world, but it doesn't really change who you are or what your preferences are of how you like to spend your time. So I have not changed one little bit other than that I'm now more comfortable with all the publicity stuff, much more comfortable than I once was. But if you find me on a non-working day, I am still doing things that are just (laughs) as quiet as they were before. That has not changed. That's interesting. And I think that means that people, those people who ask that question, they still don't have a complete understanding of introversion. So that's really, really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So bittersweet. We're about to talk about this fabulous book that I started reading one afternoon, ended up reading eight chapters, not even realizing that I was so close to the end because of all your research and everything that you have at the end of the book. So I thought I had so much more to read. I went to (laughs) sleep and then I finished it later because it was late, but I couldn't put it down because I was just so captivated by the stories and the research and everything that you put into it. But I first want to ask you, who did you write this book for? Oh, gosh, what an amazing question. I think that on some level, I'm always writing for kindred spirits, you know, for other people who see and experience the world in ways that I have. And and to some degree, that's everybody, you know, it's all humans because especially when we're talking about bittersweetness as opposed to introversion with bittersweetness, I think almost all humans have their moments when they feel quite bittersweet or tap into that state of being. And, and then there are some humans, I think, who, who are in that state a lot more frequently than others. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of write out of, you know, the feeling of like, when you go to see a movie, let's say, and you love the movie and then you're like, oh my God, I have to tell every single person I know right away that they must see this movie. Yeah, um, I think I write out of that impulse of like, oh my gosh, here's like a really deep and important experience that I have. And I want to, you know, now connect with everybody else who has that experience. It's like a, sending a message in a bottle out and hoping other people will receive it. I can relate to that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My next question is about men who I have fallen in love with, men and the violin in your book. Yes. So her story was so compelling to me. And I was just, I can't even articulate how I felt about what she experienced and then what she made out of it. So what happened to her and then what happened on the other end? Could you talk a little bit about your story, her story? Yeah, absolutely. And and Min is another dear friend of mine. Min is this world-class violinist. She was a prodigy at the violin from the time she was very little. And um, and she was lucky when she was teens, early 20s to acquire a Stradivarius violin, which, you know, if you're not from the world of violins, how would, how would one know what this means? But it's like, 
Stradivarius was a guy who lived a few hundred years ago, and he is considered the great maker of violins. No one before or since has been able to make violins like this. And, and they're said to, you know, go all the way up to the heavens. And, and Min was lucky to be able to acquire one of these violins, which became for her, her emotional everything. I mean, this violin was her lover, her child, her twin. She dedicated her whole life to its upkeep. Um, all the income that she made from playing violin, from her music, she devoted towards the upkeep of this violin. So she lived in this tiny little apartment because everything was, was devoted to her Strad. And then one day, just as she was about to make her worldwide debut, the Strad was stolen and she never got it back again. And she plunged into this terrible depression as you would. I mean, it's, it's hard for someone on the outside to understand it, but if, if you imagine losing every single person you've loved, that's kind of what it was like for, for men. That's, that's the grief that she went through. And she stopped playing. Her career ground to a halt. I don't think she got out of bed for a very, very long time. And then somehow, some years into that, somehow she kind of came out on the other side and she decided that her creativity wasn't only about that particular violin, you know, that it was deeper than that and that there are ways to transform the pain that she had experienced into different kinds of beauty. And, and that's what she did. She wrote this memoir called Gone, which was all about the love of her music and how she had lost it. And that's actually how Min and I met. Um, we had the same editor who sent me a copy of this manuscript before it came out. And I, I stayed up all night reading it. I, I just fell in love with this manuscript. It was so beautiful and lyrical. And anyway, you know, so Min published this book and, and now she's, she really has recovered completely. Um, you know, she now creates different forms of music and, and she's just as creative as, as ever she was. And she, what she says is that, you know, we, we have these stories in our culture about how, you know, there's death and then there's rebirth following it. And, and we don't necessarily believe those stories, but she says all the cliches that we hear about rebirth are actually true um, because she has experienced it for herself um, and that she would never want to go through what she went through willingly, but having gone through it, she now really has come out the other side transformed. Um, and, and I think that's a, her story is a great example for all of us who go through any kind of grief or loss or mourning. And it just was perfect in the book and, you know, tying to your title of the, the bitter and the sweet. And that leads me to my next question, which, you know, you can elaborate more on that. But my next question is about the longing and sorrow and the creativity, how that being a product of it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, I came into this project, I came into writing this book because I noticed that I and many other people I knew have um, a really strong reaction to sad and minor key music. And the reaction is not one of sadness. It's a reaction of joy and uplift and a sense of, of connection with all beings. Like it's, it's an experience of transcendence. And it's like, all I have to do is push the button at midnight and play certain music. And I'm immediately in that space. And I couldn't figure out what that was. And I, wanted to understand it. 
And so I went on this quest to like, look at what the bittersweet tradition really is. And, you know, and it's all over, it's in all our wisdom traditions and our art and our, our music and our, our writing. And what I've come to see is that we are all of us beings who come into this world with a longing for a more perfect and beautiful world than this one. Um, and a sense of having once belonged to that more perfect world and, and now, and, and, and having lost it somehow and longing to return. And we manifest that longing in many different ways, you know, so manifested in our religions, like the longing for Eden or for Zion or for Mecca. It's manifested in, in Dorothy and longing for somewhere over the rainbow in the Wizard of Oz. This is very fundamental to who we are. And it's fundamental to what the creative impulse actually is. You know, it's like a, it's an impulse to get a little bit closer to that state of perfect love and truth and beauty and everything that we long for. Um, divinity, if, if that's the language um, we're using, these are all different manifestations. Um, but that's a, that's the heart of the creative impulse, even though we're not quite aware of it. And, and this is why I feel like it's such a mistake for our culture to be focused only on positive emotions the way we are, because these experiences of sorrow and longing, though they're not always exactly pleasant, they're connected to to some of our the most deeply treasured aspects of ourselves, you know, our our creativity and our ability to connect with each other. That makes so much sense to me as I think about my favorite job on earth was at an ad agency. And I realized that it was perfect in every way. My boss, the team, the location, the clients, everything. And I think that I long for that. I think that I'll never have it again, but that's okay because I think I'm bringing elements of what I felt there into what I do now every day. So I appreciate that and great, and I'm grateful for that experience. But I find myself when I go new places, like it's not like that place, you know, like, mm. and it's, it's not supposed to be, which, which makes me think about, I want to talk about positivity, but I also want to talk about the bridges of Madison County in your book <laughs> uh-huh. and how you talk about that movie. And we are all rooting for not, I shouldn't say that Meryl Streep, who I just love anyway, I want her to leave. At the end, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a romantic. And when her husband comes back, and for those of you do, who don't know, it's a, well, I'm not going to explain it right. Maybe Susan will. But she's left with a choice of leaving her stable and wonderful and beautiful home, sort of, and taking a chance and going on this new adventure with this new photographer, exciting and all of that. And you're left wanting her to go, but she can't go. You know, she can't go. That's not how that story is supposed to end, but it was such a beautiful love story. And I love that you included it in your book. Yeah. And I actually think that you did do a really good summary for people who don't know Bridges of Madison County. She's in a marriage that's okay, but not great. She's got children. Her life is stable, not transcendent you know, photographer knocks on her door while family's out of town. They fall madly in love. He asks her to leave with him. She is packing her bags. She's about to go. And then poof, she decides, no, I have to stay with my family. And I thought a lot about this story. And when this movie and the book first came out, there was a lot of 
talk about whether there is such a thing as pure love and, you know, should she have left? Should she have stayed? What was the right thing? And, and I thought all of those were, they're like deeply interesting questions, but there's this other aspect of what the story was really telling us that I thought was being missed, which is the story was constructed in a way where she couldn't leave her family for this photographer, not only because of her duty to her family, but also because the photographer represented longing itself. Like that, that, this was really a story about existential longing. That's what the story was about. It was about the fact that on this earth, we all have our moments where we get to glimpse the Garden of Eden. And she glimpsed it in the, the four days that she spent with this photographer. But we don't get to actually live there right now. And, um, and yet the moments in which we glimpse Eden can be some of the most transformative moments we have. And, and in fact, um, you know, we're told in the story that the photographer is kind of creatively renewed after this love affair that they've had. And I don't know, I, I, but I, I find this like a very, it's a very freeing way in a way to understand what our true lives are like, because I, I think in our everyday love affairs or our everyday marriages or relationships or whatever they are, we all have the feeling that we're seeking Eden, which I'm, I'm using as a metaphor here. And, you know, during the early moments of, of romances, we often feel as if we've found it through our partner, that together we found it, you know, and then there comes the moment where you're like, oh my gosh, um, you know, he or she is actually not as perfect as I thought. And neither am I, if I'm being honest. And there could be a feeling of like, okay, well, I guess I should leave that relationship and look for the next one, which might deliver me back to that place that I glimpsed at the beginning of, of my last romance. But to understand instead that these are only glimpses and that's that's what we have, but they're beautiful in and of themselves. Um, and maybe we don't have to leave each relationship because we're just going to keep getting glimpses. Yeah. I, I, I've found that a very helpful way to understand life and love and what we really seek. Yes. And you just so eloquently stated that. Thank you for that. I want to go back to, cause I think I got us a little off track when you were talking about positivity. So you talk about the culture of positivity and how we're brought up to believe that they're sort of winners and losers can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it, it's become practically a cliche in the last year or so about how much we live in a culture of, quote, toxic positivity. We don't think so much about where this came from. But in, in this book, I actually trace the roots of it. And it's like, we have this history where as we became more and more focused on business, it became very important to us to be successful um, in our jobs, at work and business. And, um, and especially during the 19th century, where we had this series of like booms and busts and then booms and busts. And, and, you know, then into the 20th century, we, the depression and uh, people losing everything, there became this question of like, when somebody doesn't succeed, is it because of bad luck or external forces? Or is it because there's something inside them that is preventing their success, like something that makes them a failure. And increasingly, we have been answering this question by saying, yes, it's something inside them, instead of thinking of it as, as bad luck or whatever, to the point where, you know, in the Great Depression, 
there were like newspaper headlines that would say things like loser commits suicide in streets. And and so the idea was the person had lost all their money somehow because they were a loser. And the more we start viewing people that way, you're either a winner or you're a loser, the more you don't want to have anything to do with emotions that are so-called negative because that those emotions to display them would mark you as a loser, right? It's like you want to seem upbeat and happy all the time because that's showing that you're a winner. You don't want to talk about longing the way I just did because God forbid that should make it seem like you're a loser. And that's really the culture that we're still living with today. We're not like aware of it consciously, but that's shaping how how we think of ourselves and and each other. Absolutely. That's so deep to me. We see that everywhere. And you said something earlier that I wanted to touch on, your research. So why are you all over the world? You are talking to students at Harvard. You're going everywhere. I love how much research you conduct and you're traveling all over the place. So why do you feel it's important to do that? Because you did that with Quiet. And so you're doing that here. Why do you feel that's important? Well, I guess, I mean, in a way we're kind of ending where we started, which is, you know, I start off with the impulse of like, okay, I personally am experiencing something that I believe to be deep and important that I want to share with readers, but that's, that's only the starting off place. Like it's not enough for it to be just my experiences and my intuitions. I always feel like I really need to know what people have written and researched about this for the last thousands of years. And then I want to talk to other people on the ground about their experiences have been and the different ways in which these ideas manifest. So I'm like, okay, I'm talking about this bittersweet emotion that I have. Well, I should really be talking to bereavement counselors. So I went to a, I, I went to a conference for, for people who work in the field of bereavement. I'm thinking, well, I should really understand how this affects college students. So I went back to my alma mater and interviewed college students. I'm thinking, well, I really want to understand how this expresses itself in different religions. So I started exploring spiritual expressions of this. I got really interested in particular in Sufism, which is the mystical side of Islam. And I started following this uh, amazing Sufi teacher named Llewellyn Von Lee, on YouTube. He has videos all over YouTube that are extraordinary. Um, so I ended up flying across the country to California to uh, to attend one of his retreats. And that's just the way I do it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a very time and labor intensive way to write a book. But but it's great in the diversity of experiences and then the way you even describe people. It makes me feel like I'm there. So I think that whatever you're doing is great because it, it definitely helps. I think hone in the points that you're trying to make and you're seeing everybody's sides. You, you've got the voices of everyone there. Um, so that that's beautiful. I wanted to ask you about, because this is another thing that fascinated me, positional power versus personal power and the difference between angry leaders and melancholic leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is a whole line of research that has found that there are different styles of leadership out there, which I guess we know, you know, just from our daily experiences, but some leaders have what's called positional power, which is more, it's a, you could think of it as a more dominant leadership style where the people being led 
are kind of acutely aware of the leader's ability to ability and willingness to hire and fire them. You know, so they see their own fates as like being able to be moved around quite quickly by the leader. And then there are other leaders that are more relational leaders where you interview the people who work for them and they say more like that they feel on the same side as the leader. They want the leaders to succeed. They want like collectively for them to succeed. So these are just different styles of leadership. And where leaders who express anger more readily are seen more as positional leaders, whereas leaders who will sometimes express sorrow, it it can be sometimes seen as a form of weakness, but it can also be seen in this more relational style of leadership that really rallies people around the leader. So I think it's, it's for those of us who find ourselves in leadership positions, it's interesting to think about which one we most uh, naturally inhabit and which style to use at different times. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing, because I know we're running out of time is inherited grief. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that I was not familiar with this, this phrase until I was expressing something to you. And then you asked me about inherited grief. And so I want to know if you could talk about inherited grief. What is it? Are we feeling the feelings or are we grieving through our ancestors' grief? So can you explain to us what inherited grief is, which is also in your book? Yes. And I actually just had goosebumps all over again, as you recounted how you sent me this email that I'm about to describe um, just as I was researching and writing this chapter. So inherited grief, as you said, it's like the idea that that we can and do inherit the griefs or traumas of our ancestors, people who lived hundreds of years ago who we never met. And the question has become like, do we inherit that grief just culturally, is it like somehow passed on through family behaviors or, you know, sort of emotional inheritances, or is it actually genetically inherited? And the answer increasingly is seeming to be like all of the above. The genetic stuff is absolutely wild. You know, it's like scientists are starting to trace the ways in which, in which the, the traumas experienced by generation one, then, then become encoded in the genetics that they pass on to future descendants. Um, And so we've seen initial studies showing this in humans, but some of the animal studies are also really fascinating because you can kind of go faster with, with animal research. And there was this one study that was done with mice where, where they took male mice who were traumatized by being removed from their mothers. I think it was. And then these traumatized mice mated with, with female mice who were not traumatized. And then the traumatized mice were after that removed from the cages. So you knew that they weren't influencing their offspring through behavior because they weren't there anymore. And what they found is that the offspring of the traumatized male mice for five generations were still showing the evidence of having been traumatized themselves, even though they had never met that male ancestor of theirs. Five generations in, and I have goosebumps as I say this, five generations in, they were still um, displaying these erratic behaviors um, that seemed to have been passed on to them genetically. Okay. So you and me, what were we just referring to? Well, I'm like, I I was deep into researching and writing about all of this because I, in my family, I 
believe we have this kind of inherited grief. And at this very moment, an, an email pops into my inbox from you, from Jerry, saying that you were in Senegal at the time that you wrote it. And I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Gore Island or Gori? How, how do you say? Um, well, they pronounced it Gori Island. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And, and maybe you should tell the story. But you, you were yeah. at Gori Island. And, and, and well, tell me, what, did you, what were you experiencing and what did you well, write to me? It was so crazy because I had no idea you were writing about this. But mm-hmm. yes, I was in West Africa at Gori Island, which is said to be the last stop for many slaves. So me as an African-American, a black person, uh, my ancestors are slaves and were slaves. And so this is where the ships going to the British and the Portuguese and the, and the ships coming to the new America, the new Americas would stop and rest or whatever with their slaves on board before going on. And so we walked into this, this, we went on this island and we were in this, I don't know how to describe it, except it looked like a cave to me. And there were signs that said like Enfant, where you could see that's where the babies were separated and a, a different section for men and a different section for women. And it just, it just blew me away. And, I felt so many feelings that I knew weren't mine and the people with me, everyone had all kinds of responses, but I was hurt and devastated, but also I felt good. I felt like, you know, I'm helping with my people and making hopefully my ancestors proud of where I am and what I've become and what I'm doing. So I left there feeling very inspired And I was writing her an email about it because we talk about, you know, our faith and talk about, well, I always have questions about the Jewish faith. And I know that they were enslaved as well as we were enslaved. And so that was the reason for my question as we were just, well, not my question, but my, I don't know, just sharing. And then you mentioned this inherited grief. And I'm like, what's that? So that was interesting and also this mouse the mice thing that you know that's scary and that says a lot it's not scary but it's it's interesting and so there's a lot in that chapter about inherited grief and I want everybody to think about that and read that and and I wonder what can we do about it is it just knowing is better yeah no I'm actually glad you said that because I was just thinking hi I don't I don't want to leave people like feeling bummed and thinking like oh my gosh I might (laughs) I have a lot of inherited grief now. I'm stuck with it, like the like the mice. And but actually, there are different things that we can do about it. And like we know that therapy helps a lot. It actually helps the mice too. Um, like when they put the descendants of these traumatized mice into cages that have lots of like wheels for the mice to turn on and other kinds of mice appropriate therapies, um, they they find that those mice flourish. And and I think the same is true of us humans. And there are different ways of doing it, you know, but going back and and diving into our heritage and kind of sending love back to our descendants, but also saying to ourselves, as I think you were doing, like, my life is different from that. Like, I, I can love my descendants and be grateful for them and wish for them to be proud of me at the same time that I'm not living that life that they did. And, and you know, to understand that both things can be true at the same time. And Everything that you wrote and just spoke about your experience to me embodies all of that, like the way that you felt it all 
And at the same time, you felt good and you knew how proud of you they would be. Again, having goosebumps. So yeah, I, I think you embody what we can do with that. Thank you. Thank you. And and let me ask one last thing. What would you like for your readers to take away from Bittersweet? You know, I just kind of pulled out some of my favorite sections, but what do you want people to take away from this when they read it? I mean, there's so much. It's hard for me to sort of distill it, but I guess what I would say, if I had to say one thing, I would say to take whatever pain you feel like you can't get rid of and make that your creative offering or your whatever kind of offering, you know, to, to, to transform pain into beauty. I feel like that's really the message of the bittersweet tradition that has been bequeathed to us from all over the world and all through the centuries. That's what our thinkers and writers and artists and theologians have been telling us, transform pain into beauty when we can. Thank you. So perfect. And a perfect way to end Thank you, Susan Kane, for joining us. And I'm going to encourage everyone to make sure you go out and buy Bittersweet, which you can get on Amazon or at your local bookstore or on Audible. Is there anything else you'd like for us to know? Or can we share how people can follow you or what's next for you? Anything like that? Sure. Um, so to follow me, I would say, please come to my website, which is susankane.net. And you can sign up for my newsletter, and then you'll be up to date with things. And I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Yeah. And in terms of what's next for me, I, I'm going to have a new podcast that will launch probably later this year. Oh, And another book in another few years. <laughs> so that'll take some more time. <laughs> um, well, yeah, the podcast should be pretty soon. So. Okay. Okay. And can I ask what's the topic or what is, what's the podcast about? Uh, the podcast is going to be just different topics every week. Um, okay. So okay. it's not like on one specific topic. Okay. Um, and the book, I think I'm not really ready to articulate even to myself, let alone <laughs> in public. So okay. we'll wait on that one. I'll come back on the podcast in a few years. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for joining us and for sharing your talent with us in another wonderful book, Bittersweet. Well, thank you so much, Jerry, for having me. And, you know, it's been an extra special treat because we recorded this on Zoom and I get to see your lovely face. (laughs) So thank you for that. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Enjoying Hush Loudly? Please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to us. Did you know Hush Loudly has t-shirts? Yep, show the world you're an introvert without saying a word. We also have t-shirts for the extroverts in our lives who need us. Go to hushloudly.com slash shop.